Baptist Church, Charlotte. Before we do, I want to invite all of you to join me in praying for the people who are in the storm right now. Uh, There is a storm that is striking, as you all know. There's a storm that is striking uh, the west coast of Florida. And there, I've heard from one of the pastors there, and they were getting gusts over 170. And that was before the wall. That was right as the wall was just offshore. And so we need to pray for um, all the people facing the storm. Uh, One of these days, the Lord's going to enable us as a church to organize a way to help uh, all of the communities, churches, um, cities, neighborhoods that are in the path of the storm. Um, the, the reality is that in Charlotte, we, we don't get many storms. Uh, we get tropical storms. We don't get hurricanes. There is an exception about once every 50 to 100 years, but we are in a fairly sheltered place, comparatively speaking. And one of the things we can do is help the communities that are hit. We're surrounded really from uh, Virginia all the way around to Texas. We are surrounded by communities that are at risk and we want to, we want to be a blessing to others. We don't want to just pass by on the other side of the ditch, so to speak. But let's pray for all the people in the storm today and ask that God would give them strength to face what has to be faced to recover, regroup, and rebuild in Jesus' name. Lord, we are bringing before you the communities, the cities, uh, the churches, the families that are even now facing uh, the storm that is bearing down upon them. Lord, we're not, we're not simplistic about it. We, we, we understand storms are part of life, and we understand that nature has its own necessities. And yet we need strength. We need protection. We need your sustenance in our life. You are our protection. You are our provider. So Lord Jesus, protect the communities, the families, minimize the the threat to life, Uh, protect the churches so that they can become centers of refuge to the community. Uh, They can demonstrate your heart to uh, broken, shattered city, community. Uh, We pray that you would be with them. We pray that you would strengthen the hand of those who are responding, protect the teams that are going in to assist, uh, give the administrations, uh, city, county, state, national, give them wisdom to make fast decisions intelligently. Um, In Jesus' name we pray, and we thank you for it today. Amen. Uh, God bless you all. We, We love you. We're honored to have you join with us. Our title tonight is One Life to Give, not One Life to Live, uh, One Life to Give. What is the difference in our, how shall we say, in making that emphasis? Not One Life to Live, not YOLO, you only live once, so be crazy, live fast. Not YOLO, not only One Life to Live. Um, but one life to give. Obviously, as believers, our great hope is that this life of the flesh we live, this 80 years, say, um, that this life is not the end, but it is just the end of the beginning. 
as believers, we believe that humanity was created eternal and we were breathed upon by the power of God. And the, the great gift he gave us was the eternal soul uh, within. And so this becomes a reality for us where it changes our idea that we've got to try to, you know, YOLO, only live once, do all this crazy stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it changes that to the belief that we are an eternal being and we are with this great gift given responsibilities and opportunities, not just the opportunity to, you know, paint the town red and burn the farm down, but this sense of stewardship, this sense of purpose. And so as a believer, believing that we are longer lived than the 70, 80 odd years of our experience, believing that this life is just the beginning, the entryway to eternal life, um, believing that uh, it affects the way we live and we become much more generous. We become much more um, how uh, invested. We become much more committed, not just to self and exaltation of self, but to the kingdom of God in the earth. Now, once you begin to live this way, once you begin to change your mentality from a short-lived mortal to an eternal being, um, and I should add, this is something you will have to commit to over time. You'll have to wrestle with it again and again. It will not simply be one and done. I wish it were that easy. The psychology of the world is always pressing in upon us. Um, it is as though we live behind a dam and the pressure of... Uh, the community, the society, the generation in which we live uh, presses in. And when it finds an opening, it doesn't just dribble through, it blasts through. And it takes as much of our hard-fought spiritual uh, void, uh, or shall I say vessel, that we have prepared to receive the kingdom of God. It fills it with junk. It it it. It fills it with distraction. It fills it with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. And we push back again the idolatry of a self-serving life, uh, the confusion of a self-serving walk. We push that back and we decide and we work and we pray and we build altars and we turn away from the lust of the flesh and we say this is Deception. The idea that the flesh and its wants can make me happy is deception. The idea that possessions that will ultimately perish, uh, it's deception. I, I refuse the deception of the short-lived uh, believer, shall we say, or unbeliever. Uh, the person who does not realize there's more to this life than just, um, you know, weekends and paychecks and what's the next trip you have planned and uh, et cetera, et cetera. What is, what is the opportunity uh, for the believer who believes that we are much more than just a short lived person, but we are truly, we are truly people that will reign, rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that takes work on our, our part to live in that expectation. I, I, if, if you're like me, I have to remind myself almost on a daily basis, 
not to think the way uh, the world thinks, not, not to value things the way the world thinks, but to set my affections on things above and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and believing that all this other stuff will be sorted out according to, according to the will of God. So if I'm going to live that way, if I'm going to switch from a you only live once mentality, and I'm going to switch that to the idea that I am an eternal being and this life is just the beginning um, to make that switch. Um, I have to see how the life I have is not a desperate grasping for as many experiences, as many possessions, as many accomplishments as I can attain, but rather it is an opportunity to be included in the purpose of the one who created me. This is the daily walk of faith. Abraham, can you leave the world you know and seek a city whose builder and maker is God? Can you live differently than other people? If we're going to do that, we we need to make sure that we see that the great opportunity we have is one of investing our life in the kingdom of God. We, we don't have one life to lose. We have one life to give. We don't have one life to lose. Yes, I repeat myself. We have one life to give. We have been included in this great godly destiny of spiritual purpose. So just to make sure that we are all on board and we all are starting from a place of understanding I want to reiterate, we're switching our minds from a one life to lose to a one life to give. And we are seeing that the great opportunity of our life is one of investment in the kingdom of God. So let me, having uh, laid that foundation, let me invite you to see the great abiding eternal themes of the Bible. I'm always astonished that people will argue almost to either blows or cursing over the smallest interpretations of scripture. And when you ask them what the great themes of the Bible are, they're not quite sure. Uh, They split their family up over an interpretation, not of what somebody said, but what they meant. (laughs) One of the uh, biblical writers, they ended friendships over the interpretation of single verses Uh, They split the church over and you ask them, what do you think the great themes of the Bible are? And they look at you like you're an author of false doctrine because you you were unwilling to fight in the manner they were. I want to make sure, though I have any number of private, as Paul said, interpretations, (laughs) um, you know, I want to make sure I'm getting the big things, the foundational things right. So what is the first big theme? of the Bible. Yes, this is a pop quiz and you will be tested and uh, you're all going to get A's because it's an open book test. Um, the, the, the first big theme of the Bible is that God reveals himself. The first big theme of is not necessarily sin, destruction, judgment, hope, grace. The first big theme of the Bible is that God desires to be known not just to know, but he desires to be known. He knows you. 
The challenge is, do you know him? Now, ancient philosophers, uh, including the most influential in philosophers in the time when much of the Bible was being written, they believed that any God that would reveal himself was revealing that he or she, according to whatever crazy uh, belief system they had, uh, was basically un, un It was beneath them to care about humanity. It was beneath them to reveal themselves. And here comes God through the patriarchs. And what is he intent on doing? Revealing himself. This is the first great theme of the Bible, is that God wants you and me to know him. And he reveals himself in such a manner where all we have to find is just a mustard seed of faith. And we can begin a relationship with God. Not we can be perfect. That's a whole different problem. Not that we can attain some great level of accomplishment. That's a whole different problem. But that we can begin a relationship with almighty God. So let me ask you this question. How's your relationship with God going? He moved heaven and earth. So he might know you. So you might know him. He broke down every barrier to, that would keep you away from real relationship. He broke it down so he could be known of you. So there could be a love story at the heart of the sacred scripture. And that is this revealing of God. So there's a ton of Bible studies encapsulated in this revelation of God. Um, let me just real quick show you a few things. God has revealed himself through creation. How he has created the world is such a miraculous thing that whether you are a scientist or a preacher, you have to talk about the unique, unprecedented, unrivaled advantages of the world. A little bit further away, there would be no life. A little bit further, there would closer, there would be no life. If this wasn't just right, if that wasn't just right, there would be no life. And yet here we all are. The heavens declare the glory of God. God reveals himself by speaking. And the whole story of the patriarchs is that people would hear the voice of God and reorient the whole of their life. They wouldn't just, you know, show up for a blessing. They would reorient the whole of their life. And this is what every one of us do when we come to an altar. We repent. We turn away from our life, our flesh, our desires. And we say, I'm going to reorient my life toward God. Uh, he reveals himself through scripture the giving of scripture. He reveals himself through the miraculous for the person who will believe. He reveals himself most notably, most importantly, most foundationally through the life, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to know the heart of God, look at Jesus, look at what he did, look at who he loved. Look at how he served others, how he embraced others. Uh, God wants to be known of you. At the core of the whole story is a love story. Do you see? Uh, God wants to be known. He reveals himself. And so uh, this is something John, the gospel writer, understands uh, deeply. And that's why he starts his gospel with this idea that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Um, it was at the beginning, this desire, this revelatory, the first great principle of the Bible is not sin and sorrow, death, destruction, despair, and judgment. The first great theme of the Bible is that God wants you to know him. He wants you to pursue a relationship with him. There's a love story purpose in everything he has done. Okay. So, he is revealed to us. 
So another great theme of the Bible, I would, I would say uh, to understand is how it's not in our nature to submit to God. And so we choose sin as a way of competing with God, not submitting to his will, but choosing our own will. And so sin separates us from God. God loves us. God loves us enough to create us, to make us, to place us. Uh, and then we compete with God, like all God's creations. Um, there's this desire. It's the same thing that happened to Lucifer. We, we desire to compete with God. Then I will be like God. And the sin separates us from God. Um, is that going to be the end of the story? If the first great theme is the God who would reveal himself, the God who is seeking intimacy, the God who is in love and in turn wants to be in love, to be loved. Uh, what's the problem? Sin is the problem. Uh, we reject, we refuse, we turn away and we go after our own way. So what we discover is a world, not as God made it, but a world as we make it. That's why the foundation of the world is strife, competition, uh, gamesmanship, nation against nation, people against people, why we solve our fear with hatred, <laughs> why we do, this is not the world God's created. Um, we, we rejected that one, uh, and this is the world we created. And so here's the problem of sin. Will that be the end of the story? The question becomes, the great themes of the Bible, is love more powerful than sin? Is love more powerful than rejection? Is love more powerful? What wins? Does love win? Or does the bitter, sinful, evil heart of humanity win? What's stronger? The, the great themes of the Bible. Well, uh, we have this great tension in place. How will this be fixed? God wanted to have a relationship. God loved. He wants to be known. He loved. We rejected that. This same story is retold again, re-shown again, re-exampled again in the story of the house of Israel, where the Lord comes to his own, but his own receive him not. Will rejection win? Will sin win? Or does love overcome all of these hurdles, problems, uh, wounds? And uh, you can see the story again that love overcomes. And so, what does God look for in fallen people? Notice, if he cannot find righteousness, what is he looking for? If he cannot find perfection, what is he looking for? This is a big deal. This is matters. He loved us. We rejected him. He no longer can go looking for righteousness. Why? None are good. No, not one. None are good. None are righteous. None of us are good enough. Not this preacher, not anyone on the staff, not any preacher in the world. None of us are good enough. So what can God look for if it's not going to be righteousness? You see, if we were righteous, there would be no problem of separation. Do you see? I want you to get this. I want you to be able to tell people this. If we were righteous, there would be no problem of separation. We'd still be in the garden. Do you see? There would be no division but we're not righteous. So what is God looking for if he can't find righteousness? Well, I'm so glad you asked. He's looking for faith. What will God find when he looks? He's looking for faith. Is there people who can say, 
I'm not worthy, but God is good. Faith. I don't deserve it, but God is mighty. It's a statement of faith. I don't know how I'm ever going to deserve anything from God, but he is good. This is a faith response. When God finds faith, he sees it through the work of the cross as righteousness. This is not permission to sin. This is to transcend above the reality of sin. People who love try. They seek. They repent. They strive. This is not permission to sin. But what this is, is a challenge to turn again and again uh, toward the things of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God. And so God looks for faith. And what is the number one testimony of faith? The number one. It's not how many miracles you have. You can't count up miracles as notches on your belt. What's the number one sign of faith? Obedience. So someone can say it's going to storm all day long, but until they make preparations, you have to wonder how serious they were taking it. They can pray for rain as long as they want, but until they show up with an umbrella. Uh The number one sign of faith is obedience. You live your life as though you did not need faith to see. Abraham, can you leave a safe place? Can you go seek me in an alien place? Can you become a pilgrim and stranger? Can you live as though you are the father of many nations, even though you haven't even had a child yet? Abraham, where's your faith? Abraham reveals faith first through obedience. Miracles will come later. Favor will come later. Blessings will come later. Defeating armies of kings and soldiers will come later. What comes first? Obedience. And so the story of how God solves this, the story of how God is wrestling the world back from the clutches of sin and rebellion and evil that have ruined the love story. He looks for people who they cannot obey. They can't get everything right. But can you get some things right? (laughs) This is why you should never quit the church over people who can't get everything right. This is why you should never use an illustration of someone else's imperfection as why you should not try to do right and live right. Why am I saying this? Because none of the patriarchs got everything right. But what did they get right? They believed and they obeyed as though they knew it were true, even when they were still childless. This is the act of faith. I have never seen heaven. I live as though I don't need evidence. I have never seen streets of gold. Really will be cool when that happens. What am I doing? I live as though I don't need to see it. I live as though God's word is enough. And my faith, do you see, my faith in that regard takes me to a place where God is able, having looked for faith, to do what I cannot do and solve my sin problem. So here we go. There was a love story. The Lord wanted to be known, not just to know. He wanted to reveal himself. He wanted to have intimacy. This is the whole story of the book of Job. Can an unequal relationship ever equal love? Lucifer says it can't. Greek philosopher said it couldn't. Job says, though he slay me, 
yet I will serve him, thus silencing the critics of hell and answering the question whether or not the creation could ever truly love the creator. This is the story. The patriarchs, they're not made, they're not perfect, far from it. We know all about their crazy sins. Some of their sins is embarrassingly ugly, but they were found faithful, not righteous. They were found faithful. And for that faithfulness, believing the promises of God, the Lord gave them his righteousness. And this was the great triumph of Calvary, God's righteousness, going back to all the believers of times of old and going forward to all the believers who yet would still be born and still live their life. And so God wants to be known. Sin caused a problem. Faith is how we are brought back into a place of fellowship with God, not our victory, the victory of the cross. Now then, going forward, what is the mission still? Is God finished when me and my family are saved? Is that the end of the story? Is God's kingdom complete? Oh, we got those elms. Those are all the people that really matter. No, those are just sometimes the people that only that matter to the carnal elms. <laughs> the Lord has a project to reach the whole whosoever will. It's not God's will that any would perish. And so God has this ongoing, continuing project in the earth. And what is that project? He desires to be known, not just to know. He reveals himself. He desires to have relationship. He desires to walk and share and do life. He desires the quiet of your reflection, calling upon him, saying, God, I love you. I want to serve you. I want to be like you. Do you see? He still wants to be known. It's still about a love story, except now. We have joined him in a purpose to make whole a world broken by sin. And how do we do it? We do it the same way he did it. We obey. Not, we, we have not attained perfection. We obey as much as in us lie. We get it right. We serve. We give less of us, more of him. We obey and we become, here comes this unique moment, having been a recipient of God's inclusion, we are now in covenant with Almighty God. And the New Testament word that you will often read that is much misunderstood and often used to confuse people more, often used to unintentionally paint God as a monster in the sky. Here's the word. We become the elect of God, the elect of God, who are the elect of God. Now, if you take this to, to an extreme, you end up with a theology. And what that does is it means it, 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 it is as though it's set up to say that uh, God created some to be saved and some to be lost. And the ones he created to be lost are lost forever, punished forever, even though they do, did exactly what God created them to do, which was be lost. Um, this, is a, um, this is a dark, dark view of a God. Uh, who desires to save. But what is this idea of the, of the elect? Those who enter into a covenant relationship with God are included in the project that's from the beginning. And what is that? It's a love story. That's why the imagery of the rapture and the imagery of the church caught away as a bride is a love story. That's why one of the most prophetic 
uh, Old Testament books of the church is actually the Song of Solomon, which has been making teenagers uh, blush for years. You, you, you see what I'm saying? There's a love story here from the beginning, and we are a lot, are included in the love story, not just as the object of God's love, but as the method by which God extends his love, sheds it abroad in the earth. And so we are left as believers with this opportunity. Abraham did not have a promise that was just for him. He had generations after him. That covenant would include the whole house of Israel. It was much bigger than him. God's favor on you is bigger than you. God's investment in you, God's covenant commitment to you, God's embracing you as his elect. This is you involved in the story. So I want to say what I said at the beginning. You don't just have one life to live. You don't just have one life to lose. You have one life to give. Do you see? You have been included. You have become the elect of God. You are included in this project to do what? To make God known, to celebrate his name, to lift up his praise. Why would he care about uh, mortals praising him? What's in it for him? Is he just an egomaniac? You, 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 you are missing the, when you go down that road, you're, you're missing the story. His desire from the beginning was not just to know, but to be known, a, re, a love relationship. And when we praise God, when we give God glory in our life, when we tell of the goodness of the Lord, you know, you know what we're doing? We are working as the elect of God, making him known. You have one life to give. It's not a YOLO story. You only live once. It's not a risk story where, you know, you only have a few years and then you're dead. No, it's an investment story. And you are invited. You, my brother and sister, are invited to give a life to what? The story from the beginning. You become in the same manner that Jesus was born and testified of the love of God and shown, shown forth the heart of God and bore the sins of us all. That's the work of God in the earth. That is the heart of God demonstrated. That is God with us. Emmanuel, the hope of glory. That's why the apostle John would say, look, guys, in the beginning was the word. And this isn't a separate uh, kind of uh, hyper multi-dimensional theological study, nor is it a type of polytheism. It's this. This is the heart of God. This is this. This is not a new plan. It's the same plan from the beginning. And Jesus with us is the hope of glory. He is no other name. It's all in Jesus Christ. This story is from the beginning, and I have been given an opportunity to invest my life in this great story. You, my brother and sister, you have one life to give, not one life to lose, one life to give. And so we are all of us included in covenant. And covenant is not about me having the nicest house in the neighborhood. Covenant is not about me and mine never going through difficulty. Covenant is not about me avoiding all the storms in my life. That's not what covenant's about. Covenant is about God's inclusion in his purpose.
I am no longer my own. I am included in his purpose. And that election, that place of uh, honoring God, honoring you to include you. So let's say that there's something needed to be done uh, in your community, in your world. And uh, you had wanted to do it. You never thought there was anything you could do. You had wanted to help. You never thought there's anything you could do to help. And all of a sudden you find out about a nonprofit, say, that's coming into your community. Uh, and what you have been talking about for years needs to be done. You didn't even know anyone else cared. You didn't know anyone else could see the needs. You thought they were all blind. And now to your surprise, this nonprofit shows up and they say, we're going to do exactly what you've said we need to do. Here's the thing. Would you like to help us? This is the moment of becoming the covenant partner of God. Covenant is not just, as I've said, about us getting ahead. Covenant is about divine spiritual inclusion. The greatest gift you will ever get in your life is the fact that God included you in his kingdom. There is no other honor. I know we low rate it. I know we take it for granted, but there is no other honor higher than this one. God has included you in his plan to make a broken world whole. God has included you in his plan to make his name known in the earth, to show the love of God. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. We have been included. And once you realize that, it changes your thinking. You no longer think in terms of one life to lose. You think in terms of one life to give. I have been included. And the story from the beginning is God choosing and including people in his plan to save, yes, the world. This is what covenant is for us. This is what divine election is for us. We are included. God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac. Esau should have got it, but God chose Jacob. But it's more complicated than just who won the toss of dice. God responds to the passion of our heart to be included. It's not Esau. It's Jacob. Why? Jacob is the one who is hungry. Is Jacob righteous? Not even a little bit. That sucker's a crook. <laughs> Why is he chosen? He hungers for it. He's chosen. God chooses Israel. What is the purpose? Through you shall all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world be blessed. And why, why do they miss this? They think they are the purpose of God, not that through them the world would be changed, but they are the purpose of God. This is why Jesus throws a fit in the court of the Gentiles and turns over the tables of money changers drives out the cattle with a, 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 a rope. He clears it out. First of all, why was the, the court of the Gentiles um, being used as a marketplace? Because there was no Gentiles ever coming. It wasn't a religion with an open heart. They had all this space for nothing. Gentiles weren't allowed. In fact, at the time Jesus came, there were one of the biggest debates among the elders of the Jewish faith was whether or not you could even be friends with the Gentile. They had utterly rejected the world, even though the biggest part of their house that God told them to build was built for Gentiles. The biggest part 
of their court by God's design was for Gentiles. How many Gentiles were there? Mm. Not many. So they have all this room. So what do we do to it? Well, it's not being used by anybody. We're not blessing any Gentiles around here. Let's turn it into a marketplace. And Jesus comes in and it drives him crazy. He cannot take it. He flips the money tables. He drives the candles out. And what does he say in the court of the Gentiles? My house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. And you have turned it into a den of thieves. Do you see? The purpose in the house of Israel was to be a blessing to all. God has this plan to make a broken world whole, to let love win over sin, to let love win over hatred, to change our hearts. And is it hard? Yes, it's crazy hardest thing that's ever tried to be done. Only it's a God-sized problem. And he's chosen us to be a part of that. And as people, we have this opportunity, not one life to lose, not only one life to live. I have one life to give. I have one life to invest. I will never have a greater honor than this. God has included me in a project, a program to make the world better. So, all right. This probably isn't the kind of study that automatically uh, fills your mind with questions. And so with that in mind, I have, I want to give you some time to uh, ask any questions you have, but I want to start by taking some practical steps. Um, how do we respond to this reality? We've stopped for a moment, the, the predictable religious game of having angry arguments over small interpretations of meaning on scriptures we both agree were written the way they were written. And we've backed away to try to see the view from 30,000 feet. And now what? Where do we, where do we begin? Uh, so the first thing I want to say is, is this. Um, we have to stop acting like people in the world acts when they face circumstances. What is required for us to do that? Well, we could start on the Sermon of the Mount. Why does Jesus ask us to take an opposite response to so many things? The response the world would give is not what we do. So I'll give you an example. When they smite you on the cheek, offer the other cheek. Well, this doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, the point is this, is if the elect, if God's covenant people solve the problems of life the same way the unbeliever solves it, then how are we changing our world at all? How are we changing? The first thing we do is we desire transformation in ourselves. So we do not return evil for evil. We do not return anger for anger. We do not return curses for curses. The first change, the first step happens in us. The first practical step, all the teaching of Jesus on the Mount the whole teaching is the series of commandments, this series of, shall we say, life choices that are an exact opposite of most people. Jesus, Jesus asks us to live a life based in faith. Let me give you some examples. 
don't worry about the stuff in this life that most people worry about. Consider the lilies of the field. They don't sit up all night worrying about things. They live as though God's got it all under control. So I'll just speak for myself and maybe hit you by accident. So when I respond to worry like an unbeliever, how am I making God known in the earth? When I respond to provocation with the same anger, how am I making God known in the earth? Do you, does that make sense? The first thing I do is I demonstrate the change God has made in me. And I start making God known. Now that gets attention. People are surprised by this. One of the things that's underappreciated, um, you have to be a little bit of a history nerd to appreciate this. But one of the things that is underappreciated in the history of the persecuted church was just how impressive it was to see Christians go to their grave, be fed to the lions, be burned alive, and not return evil for evil, but to pray prayers like lay it not to their charge, to pray prayers or they are known and noted in by multiple historians, historians to most commonly die singing. Now, this is unlike any other movement in the world. Um, this is different. This is a whole different world. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, what did the Jews do? The Jews formed militias and went to war. The Jews created zealot parties. Now, Christianity later on with the rise of the Roman Empire, we would we would take up kind of more warlike response at the governmental level. Um, but at the individual level, as a persecuted church, the power of a testimony of people who did not die hating you, they did not die uh, cursing you. They lived as though they did not need evidence to trust in the promise of God. This had a profound impact on uh, the early Roman empire the behavior. So the first way we make him known is we live out the transformation in our life. When you are provoked, don't see it as an opportunity to be ostentatiously holy. People see through that. Don't see it as opportunity to be ostentatiously spiritual. Simply live as though God's on your side. See the good in people that you want to fight with. That's hard. It ain't easy, honey. It ain't easy for me. Um, but that is the first stage of how we make him known. The next way we make him known is through praise and testimony and worship. We come together, we worship him, we testify, we share the goodness of the Lord. We're quick to give God credit for everything in our lives. We make him known through praise and worship. We make him known through testimony and teaching. We make him known in simple ways of simply speaking like the man um, who was blind, who said, look, I don't know about all of your opinions of him, but this is what I know. I once was blind. Now I see um, that making him known. And this is what the purpose was from the beginning, which is why Jesus would say, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. We're still in the business of lifting him up. We're still in the business of making him known. So we're transformed in our actions and we pray every day for continuing transformation. I've done better in some areas than others. Um, so have you. Um, we make him known through testimony. 
through teaching. We make him known through praise and worship. Uh, and so next, we organize with other believers. This is the role of the church. We organize with other believers. Um, and we. this is what we do when we come together on Sunday and we worship together. This is what we do when we organize uh, small groups where we show the love of God one to another. Um, the, 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 the real magic of a small group is not whether or not you are the best teaching on revelation prophecy ever. I mean, that might be a great small group, but that's not the, that's not the success or fail of it. Um, it's not how much you know. It really isn't. It is the, the great magic of it is that you connect with people who, like you, are trying to turn their hearts toward the kingdom of God. And you can be a tremendous success simply by showing people Christian affection and charity, just by checking on people, just by including people, by opening your life. You have something you enjoy doing? Include somebody in it. Um, this is the simple way, and it is the powerful way. And this is why Paul would write to a church going through all manner of persecution from the house of Israel that they have been pushed out of to the Roman empire that they're being persecuted by. He tells them, look, here's the thing. It's awesome to be powerful, but that's not going to convince the world. And it's awesome to have all knowledge. That's not going to convince the world. It's awesome to have all tongues and spiritual gifts. That's not going to convince the world. Let me tell you what's going to convince the world. Love, charity, or let me say it differently. Make his no love known from the beginning. God wants to be known. He's revealing his love. It's a love story. We make his love known. That never fails. Um, and so uh, in response uh, to Anthony's question about organizing our life when we feel overwhelmed, um, uh, he says, by way of personal testimony, oftentimes I feel like my biggest hindrance to selfless Christian living is too busy, too overwhelmed, without even adding church activities and responsibilities. Amen. And again, I say, amen, brother, you have put into words uh, exactly what um, is the challenge, the challenge for all of us. Uh, the first thing I would, I would remind myself and all of you would be this. We're not very good judges of whether or not we're effective in showing the love of God. What we look is for the finished product. Um, we, we, it's kind of like if we can point and count to what we have done for the Lord, then we feel better. But if we have to trust him to bring forth a harvest at some point in the future, we feel like a failure. You're not a very good judge of whether or not you're effective. But I will say this, organizing yourself for ministry is the first step of all ministry. Organizing yourself for the calling is the first step to all the calling. And the greatest example of this is the missionary journeys in the New Testament. They had to make an effort. They organized. They prayed about it. They got themselves sorted out. Who can do this? Who can go there? I think you'd have an advantage there. I think you'd have an advantage there. And so along with our desire has to come intentional organization. Yes, you heard that right. Along with our desire has to come intentional organization. And that is why we are striving to empower people to do various things. Notice our church doesn't do everything. We, we can't do everything. There's a lot of ministries that are good ministries we don't do. Um, why? Because we've intentionally organized ourselves. We've considered what we have. We considered our skill set. We said we can do this, this, and this, and we're gonna. And so it is in every one of your lives. Um, we have to treat it as serious as the Apostle Paul and Silas and Barnabas um, and uh, all the other great missionaries of the New Testament. They organized for the mission. Um, you'll still feel at times overwhelmed. 
but you'll looking back realize how much more effective you were simply by organizing yourself um, and picking one thing, picking one thing, picking one thing um, and doing it. If you don't have one thing, support somebody else's one thing. If you're not doing a small group this semester, support someone else's and say, I want you to know I'll be there every time. I'll consistently invite my friends. I don't have one going this time. I'm committed. I'm going to be part of that. Uh, Joel, a uh, great point here. Leading with love sometimes does not feel as effective as being loud and boisterous on the street corner. Not sure how great I am at either. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Um, so here's the thing. Um, we are programmed to love power. Not to employ the power of love. Okay. So we are programmed to love power, not embrace the power of love. What's the difference? Power is control. If I can control your life, I can make sure you're good enough, at least for me. Um, but I don't get to control your life. And since I don't get to control your life, I'll just make the group smaller and smaller and smaller until there's only 20 or 30 people here that we can control. Everyone else knows they're not really welcome. Um, this is the struggle of the flesh. This is the struggle of the carnal mind with its religious impulse. And so I absolutely agree. Leading with love often feels uh, almost like you're the sucker at the table. Honestly, true story. Leading with love often feels like you're the one being taken advantage of. The cynical calculating people are the ones who are getting it right. You're being taken advantage of. Uh, the churches who, if they can't program every part of your life, then they're, you're, they let you know you're not really welcome. They're the ones who have real people ready for heaven. Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe not. The point is we are given not, God's called us not to the love of power. God has called us to the power of love. And we will oftentimes feel like the sucker at the table when we do it. Why do we keep doing it? Because that's what God did for us. Now, if you don't get that, if you don't embrace that, you will try to offer the gospel with a calculating spirit. And that's not how we're supposed to do it. How did we receive it? God freely gave. How do we give it? We freely give. So people will take advantage. Yes, we organize to just to do what we can. But after that, we just leave it bread on the water. In other words, if I, if I do an announcement tomorrow and say $50 ahead, we'll have every person who shows up and they will just, you know, they, that we're not going to intentionally just support people's bad habits. Um, at the same time, once the bread is on the water, we're not going to overthink it. We're just going to simply say, look, I wish people would run to the altar, throw themselves and say, I repent of everything. Tell me how to get, live. I'm here. I'm getting rid of all my bad habits. From now on, I'm an automaton. And here you have the controls. Just tell me what to do. Um, that would be great. That would feed our need for power. Um, but that wouldn't be a love story, would it? That'd be a power story. It wouldn't be a love story. It'd be a power story. God's called us to the love story, not the power story. And here's the evidence. He who had all power. Peter, don't you know even now I could call legions of angels? Peter, don't you know I have power? Put up your sword, Peter. This isn't a power story. This is a love story. Put up your sword. If the sword was the answer, you'd all be dead. I'd have legions. One of my, one of my angels slew uh, the firstborn of all Egypt in one night. 
What do you think legions could do? Peter, power is not the answer. If we choose power, we don't have a love story anymore. We have a power story. And the story from the beginning has been about love, the God who reveals himself. I don't want to just know you. I want you to know me. Lord Jesus, we are praying that we as your people would have a deep, deep passion to show forth your nature, your name, your truth, your heart to the world that will often feel like uh, we're being taken advantage of. In fact, there are many Christians who will kind of sneer at us and they'll say, we don't believe anything because we love people. Uh, we, we're, we're, we're liberals or whatever, because we don't, we, which any review of Christianity is a, is, is, a, is a silly attack, but it will hurt us, Lord, and it'll, it'll make us withdraw and we'll think, man, this maybe isn't the way. Uh, but from the very beginning, you gave us a love story. You didn't choose power. You chose love. We love power. And sometimes if we don't have power, we feel ineffective. But Lord Jesus, you told us it's actually love that changes the world. Your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. Lord, help us to be practical about how we show forth the knowledge of you in the world. Help us to be uh, intentional about organizing ourselves for the mission, embracing the call, celebrating the fact that we are in covenant with you. We are the elect of God. We are called to the mission. Lord Jesus, I pray you would anoint every ministry of our church. I pray you would anoint every small group in our church. I pray you would anoint the extended ministry opportunities in our church, the people we pray for at work, the people we encourage day by day. I pray that we would do it, not just as duty, but we would do it to lift you up, to make your name known in the world and know that you would do what we cannot do, which is draw men and women unto you. Thank you for including us. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love, your blessing, your hope. We receive it today. We are encouraged by it. Lead us, strengthen us this Sunday as we open our hearts to our community groups, our small groups. Help us to make great connections, Lord Jesus. Help us to have effective fires all over the city, not just one big bonfire on Sunday, but fires of Holy Ghost anointing all over the city. In Jesus' name we pray, and we bless you, Lord, today. Amen. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.